Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. This episode, David Goodwillie takes us underground with domestic terrorists in Manhattan, reading an excerpt of his novel, American Subversive, out now from Scribner. Infiltrating the mall of Manhattan, through the eyes of a young woman radicalized by her brother's death in Iraq, the glossy surfaces of the city fracture as army brats gone rogue, plan to bomb boutiques from the Warrens where illegal immigrants do the invisible living New York no longer advertises. Please enjoy David Goodwillie. Hello, Apostrophe Cast listeners. This is David Goodwillie. I'm the author of American Subversive, which comes out April 20th from Scribner. And I'm sitting in New York City on the first nice day of spring uh, with a few friends of mine uh, on the back porch. So if you hear some uh, car horns and fire trucks, you'll know it's very authentic New York. Uh, The scene actually I'm gonna read uh, takes place in downtown New York City. The book is about a uh, woman named Paige Roderick who is a political extremist. Her brother has died in Iraq and um, she falls in with a uh, dangerous group of radicals who are planning some direct actions, violence. And uh, on the other side of the equation, a blogger, a failed journalist, named Aiden Cole who uh, one night opens his email and finds a picture of Paige after a bomb has gone off and underneath are the words this is Paige Roderick she's the one responsible they basically I thought represented the two of two sides of my generation a guy who doesn't care about the world and a girl who cares too much about it and they bring each other in from the fringes um, or hopefully do I'm gonna read a part I'm gonna read Paige's part actually uh, a few pages And in this scene, Paige is going down to New York with a guy named Keith Sutter, who is the leader of the radical group. And they're going to scout out uh, the bombing location, which is in an office tower above the department store Barney's. And so I I will start now. The goal was New York by noon, so we left at first light. I suggested the throughway, but Keith thought coming through New England would be faster, so that's what we did. I-91 through Springfield and Hartford and on down to the bucolic Merritt Parkway. Keith kept looking off into the surrounding woods. I've always loved this road, he said. It's really beautiful. He was right. The winding canopied parkway was beautiful. The day was beautiful. All expectation. This was it, our big reconnaissance trip, the beginning of whatever was to come. I would be the front, the person who'd appear in public. Part preparation, part improvisation. It was a role I'd played well in North Carolina. But this was New York, and though I'd once called the city home, it was a different place now. Taller, prettier, more angular. It was aging well, the recession having left it physically, if not financially, unscarred. We made good time and came in down the west side, the sun high over the Hudson, past sailboat marinas and massive cruise ships, their white sterns sticking out beyond the piers as if mooning all points west. Yes, New York still had attitude, but it was a different kind of us against the world. More Donald Trump. Les Lou Reed. We turned east onto 23rd Street and sliced across town. New high-rises consuming Chelsea, baby strollers three deep on village sidewalks. Soho like the world's largest duty-free shop, all perfume and fine leather. And then the Lower East Side. I lived on Stanton and Suffolk for a few years after 9-11, when the neighborhood was still scruffy and marginal, when figures lurked in doorways and women walked in groups at night. But it was turning even then. 
Gentrification reaches out like a welcoming hand, block by dirty block, until the grip gets too tight and you can't get away. Boutique jewelry stores, then boutique hotels. I left before the turnover was complete, before the last of the Bowery flop houses and Italian butchers closed for good, before Delancey Street became less a border than a boulevard. Now people were everywhere, lounging half-naked outside coffee shops and frozen yogurt stores. Some ersatz version of America had invaded these narrow tenement streets. American Eagle, American Apparel, American boys and girls drinking American beers in their snap-button cowboy shirts and Daisy Duke shorts. Grow the legend large enough and the country becomes it. Keith was watching the road. I wanted to ask if he'd ever lived in New York, but he was busy glancing in mirrors. And anyway, his experience in the city would have been so different than mine. I'd moved here straight from UNC, a fresh-faced girl chasing rumors of a counterculture. But what I found was conformity, endemic apathy. The counterculture, such as it was at the dawn of the 21st century, seemed like the only segment of society that wasn't changing. Sure, kids still came to New York from everywhere else, seeking thrills and some loose kind of meaning. But how quickly they discovered themselves, settled into satisfaction, cozied up to success. And it's hard to rage against that. The streets were playgrounds. They were malls. We turned right on Allen and right again onto East Broadway where it crosses under the Manhattan Bridge and only then did a different city emerge. We'd come into a narrow pocket on the edge of Chinatown, an immigrant neighborhood that sloped toward the river like it might never find its footing. Life down here was lived in the open, drying clothes billowed from fire escapes. Asian men huddled over games passed through centuries. Women watched or shuffled past, weighed down not by what they carried but something heavier the hard slog of it all. It felt very far away. But that was the point. Keith turned left on Catherine Street and proceeded slowly past project line blocks I'd never known existed. Henry Street, Madison, Monroe. We were hard against the East River now, could glimpse the crumbling docks and fish stalls of a long-forgotten world. Keith made another left at Water Street, then turned back up the hill onto Market. This was the oldest part of the island, the streets thin as arteries. And when we found a parking spot, it was all Keith could do to wedge us in. He waited a minute before turning off the engine, but we hadn't been tailed. We're going over there, he said, nodding at a graffiti-covered apartment building halfway up the block. Fourth floor, the window by the fire escape. I've got keys. We'll pretend we're a couple. No one's going to ask, I said, but if someone does. We walked past the building's two street-level businesses, a filthy fish market and a boarded-up fabric store, and climbed the front steps. Keith knew which keys went with which locks, and once we were inside, we hurried up the dark stairwell, turning our faces from the peepholes we passed. The air smelled like rotting fish and something else. Boiled vegetables, tangled roots, foreign soil, poverty. Keith stopped outside the apartment and listened a moment before opening the door and turning on the light. A narrow hallway opened into a small room with bare walls and a grimy window partially hidden by blinds. A low table separated two cots and a sleeping bag sat by uh, waiting for us in the foot of each bed. There was a bathroom near the front door, but no kitchen, just a coffee maker, hot plate, mini fridge stacked in a corner. Outside, a train rumbled across the bridge on its way to Brooklyn. He raised the blinds with a flourish, but the fire escape still obscured much of the light. Sorry about the view, he said. Any other exits? There's a basement door that leads to a back alley. The building's full of illegals coming and going at all hours, so it's usually just wedged open. But we've never had any trouble down here, so use the front entrance unless there's an emergency. It'll be much less conspicuous. 
Keith had said there'd be a set of architectural plans for 660 Madison Avenue waiting for us, and sure enough, there they were, rolled up in a corner of the hallway closet. I could only imagine how they'd gotten there, the amazing precision of the whole thing, and for a moment it made me think we couldn't fail. We spread the sheets across the floor and got to work. Someone who wasn't an architect who'd scrawled comments here and there, along with arrows, question marks, exclamation points, and Keith went through them all carefully. I took notes, and by late afternoon we'd finalized our plan. It was straightforward. I'd go up to Barney's at lunchtime the next day, a Saturday in summer. There'd be plenty of people around, so blending in wouldn't be a problem. There looked to be several ways into the office building for the adjoining department store, which meant we could conceivably avoid using the ground floor lobby. I needed to examine these shared corridors firsthand, determine accessibility, memorize details, locks and lighting, stairwells, elevators, security cameras, personnel, and all without raising suspicions. I'd have to look the part. Around 5.30, I left Keith to his calculations and set out for the vintage stores on Ludlow and Orchard. Shop after shop of pretty girls, all teeth and tans. They made me nervous. No, they couldn't help me. No, I wasn't looking for anything in particular. Just another skin to hide behind. I bought a modest, knee-length skirt, a sleeveless top and low heels I could walk or run in. I paid in cash. Dusk descended and I started back, a golden New York twilight, the kind you noticed and slowed to admire. The bars had opened their doors to the street and out poured the voices of early drinkers, the latest jukebox favorites, and a river of summer laughter, easy and free-flowing. It was the sound of a city I'd always imagined, but never quite found. The laughter, I mean, and all that fitting in. I picked up sandwiches, cigarettes, a six-pack of beer at a bodega near the apartment, then walked a square-block perimeter before entering the building. Keith was talking on his cell phone when I came in, his voice stern, almost angry. When he saw me, he stopped in mid-sentence. In the moment before he snapped the phone shut, I heard a man's faint shouting through the earpiece. What was that about, I asked. Nothing. Let's see what you bought. I paused a moment, then took the skirt and top out and held them up. Feel free to try them on, he said, grinning. It's okay, they fit. We worked a few more hours, going through contingencies until we'd passed the point of effectiveness. Keith got up and opened two of the beers. We clinked bottles and exhaled for the first time all day. Soon we started talking carefully at first, then more freely. Scraps of things, childhood stories, trips we'd taken, people we'd known. Maybe they were real names, maybe not. It didn't matter. I lit a cigarette, and he sat down beside me to share it. He looked content, a man in his element inasmuch as Keith could be in anything. It had grown dark outside, and the light bulb above us pulsed like a movie prop. We sat with our back against the far bed, listening to the trains on the bridge. Keith told me where he'd grown up. Jacksonville, Mobile, Virginia Beach. A military brat, I said, and he nodded. Parents split up, I said, and he nodded again. You buy into that world or you get out, he said. My mom got out in Virginia. I hung in until San Diego. I was 16. Young still, I guess, Keith replied. Did he know about my family's background? Beyond my brother, I mean? It wasn't so different. Three generations of war, of duty and slowly mounting despair. You give so much, and then you give everything. The moment was becoming charged, discomforting, and to fill the silence I began to talk again about surprises, about growing up and discovering how much of life take its form in opposites, patriotism, courage, love. You think they mean one thing when in fact they mean something else entirely. 
But I didn't get far because it happened then. Keith put his hand on mine, and I froze. It felt as light as a promise, and as crushing as the moment it's broken. What was he doing? Physically, not much, just sitting there as if it hadn't happened, wasn't happening at that very moment. I became aware of my breathing, the seconds moving past, and yet the world was still with me, and all that talk about our project, our mission, our action being so much more important than the individuals involved, the mighty sum of its lesser parts, the lectures about emotions, desires, beliefs, how these were to be shunted aside or abolished altogether for the greater good, just like our pasts, our histories, our lives up to now. What I felt was not anger or disappointment, but something less definitive, a kind of far-off regret. Why was I there? Why had I been chosen? Was it this? Would it always be this? Fear crept into me. I was scared to move. His fingers were stroking mine, softly, almost imperceptibly. He put his arm around my shoulder, his hand dangling near my breast. The other found my leg, my bare thigh, the inside of it, under my denim skirt. He wasn't gripping me hard, but I felt his fingers on my skin, and with it the hard rush of the familiar, men I'd been with in one city or another, and the ensuing lies and disappointments, months of anxious sighing, hoping even as I sank away, the bottom deeper every time, the end always the same. This was supposed to be different, a passion born of something nobler than desire. Three of us had reached an understanding on that first day in the car and agreed to let it carry us where it would, a place beyond the physical. Keith was looking at me. He began to pull me toward him. I could see it in his eyes. This was no joke, no drunken aside. It was betrayal. No, I said. I pulled roughly away and stood up without a word. Keith didn't try to stop me. He just watched as I walked into the bathroom and locked the door. I sat on the edge of the tub and rubbed my face. A deep weariness came over me, a traveler's exhaustion, a soldier's exhaustion, that I could be so wrong, so utterly naive. I'd chosen, finally, after years, to believe in someone. I thought I'd found a place where my value was more than skin deep. And now, and now, how long was I in there, 20 minutes, 30? At some point, I got up and tied my hair back. I washed my face in the small sink and then walked back into the main room. Keith had turned the light out, but I could still see his trim form stretched across the cot nearest the door. He was pretending to be asleep. I tiptoed past to the other bed, the eyes, the charisma, the overwhelming sense of danger that announced him, surrounded him, defined him. Had a woman ever said no before? The city outside was as quiet as I'd ever heard it, everything just waiting. I slept in my clothes that night, as Keith had trained me to do, and when I woke in the morning, he was gone. Thank you for listening. Please join us on May 19th for our next episode.